favorites of mine. And my reason for choosing the Psalms is that um, they're religious. There's a piety to them that that um, is exists in Hawthorne's work, I think, in a in a strong measure. Um, so I'm going to read two favorite psalms. If you take a look at those psalms from our packet, 127, 137, and you know that in 127 the, the psalmist is saying, unless I base everything I do on God, everything will come to ruin. If I don't build my house, if you know, we can put it on whatever foundations we want. I hope everybody's getting that because even if the, even if the foundations are cement and they outlast us, the question is, will those foundations hold when we're going through spiritual problems? Yeah, I hope everybody's hearing that. So no matter how sound our foundations are, and how much they meet the requirements of insurance companies, he's talking about something else. The real question is what our spiritual foundations are. When we go through problems in our family, in our homes, will we, will God be the center of our life? And you know that 137 is spoken, um, it's sung while they're in captivity, so they've lost their home. Remember in Melville, we, the story was about, it took place in what Melville called exiled waters. The Pequot is exiled, it's left its home. Ishmael is going on an exile. He's gone where he doesn't belong. And you know that everybody's gonna die in exile. And lots of the Jews had to fear for that. In fact, I'm sure lots of Jews died in exile. So here we have a song sung in exile, longing for the temple to be returned to their homeland and gone. Both Melville and Hawthorne, and certainly Hawthorne will make clear when we get to it tonight, Hawthorne loved his land. He looks back in fondness to Salem. What ha the story he talks about is 200 years old. But he looks back in real fondness and he looks back in shame because he's aware of the crimes his ancestor committed. He didn't want to cancel it. That was not his answer to sins. He bore it, he suffered it. His prayer, you know, in the book is he wants to see it redeemed. He hopes he can have some hand in redeeming the faults of his forebears. And you know from our work together that one of the defining principles of the epic, you've heard this heard me say this countless times, the epic as a genre always carries the past forward and redeems it as it goes. There's no way to escape the past. It's a part of the wounds, whatever pains, they're there. The epic poet created a work which by its very nature worked in the past. It went back to the past, picked it up, carried it forward to redeem it. So every epic is a work about transformation, changing the past. It's the work we're all called to do, to pick up our past and redeem it, change it, okay? So, Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man 
who hath his quiver full of them, they shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. They are going to take on the enemies, um, not turn away from them, but in a good spirit. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Raise it, raise it, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, you devastator, happy shall, be, uh, happy shall he be who requites you with what you have done to us. Happy shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Um, both psalms are praises of God. Um, um, to praise him is the center of their life and to never forget the past. And both of these works, I've tried art, well, we've got Hawthorne ahead of it. Both of these works are saying indirectly in one say, do not forget the past, carry it forward. Um, Melville's Moby Dick begins with the people having forgotten their past. We've already seen it. It's a, it's a Christianity that's failed. It's become weak and bourgeois. It's less concerned about God than about comfort and money. So it's a people who's forgotten its past. The whole voyage at sea is to uncover the metaphysical depths of that. What's going on? What's, what's wrong? And Ishmael comes back um, to tell us about it all. Okay, very quick review. Um, very, very quickly. If you got your notes, you can follow along, but I'm just going to rush over these quickly. Um, remember the overall structure of Moby Dick is that we begin on land. Um, Melville is critiquing land. It's, it's the established Christian culture. It's Protestant. It looks back to its founding and what we see is a Christianity that's, um, that's lost its roots. It's no longer alive. Um, the sea is really important. I, I want to take a second with it here. You know that it's been one of the really important images in all of our work. It was in Shakespeare, it was in the Odyssey, it was in D Dante, um, it was in Aeneid, um, it's at sea um, that people discover who they are. And hold on, I want you to remember this if you, forg if you remember nothing else. The sea is an image of what's indefinite. Um, it's like grace or evil, even something evil, but generally is an image of grace where, where something unformed is working with the soul of man. So hold on to this. Um, the sea is, is not a product of man's doing. The land is. Right? It's, at, it's on land where we build our homes. It's at sea where we build nothing. It's, the sea is not a product of our doing. Land is. So everywhere we look on land, we see products of our own doing. In fact, we can go back to uh, Enoch. 
Remember, the, we've talked about that. Enoch is the builder of the first city. Cain is, is um, sent into exile. His son Enoch builds the first city. The city is man's attempt to live without God. So the city shows how great man is, how, how, how much he doesn't need God, he thinks. He's so self-sufficient, he's so capable. But it's also the place where he meets evil. He has to confront himself again. So the city's always dual. It's always paradoxical. We see the very best of man. We see the very worst of him. The city. The sea is that which is not a product of man's doing. It's where we meet God because it's there directly. He's the creator of nature. So it's there where we meet nature unformed, where we meet where we take everything off and we meet ourselves. Lear on the heath, the heath was like that. It was the heath, it wasn't the sea, but it had that sort of symbolic level of meaning to it. So it's an image of what's indefinite. It's often an image of grace. It's where um, man meets himself, his sins, and learns to see himself more clearly for who he is. Um, and we saw in Melville um, that what was at issue in Ahab's struggle with nature, the whale, Moby Dick, and the wound that Moby Dick caused him, were three, three doctrines, principally, okay? Um, the first one was the, the tendency in the Protestant mind to, to, to take as the basis of their life those two dogmas, sola fidea, faith alone, and scriptura, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And what we're going to find in, in Hawthorne is what was implied in Melville, but in Hawthorne it's made clear. When you take those two doctrines and make them the principle of your life, they immediately come into conflict. That's what we're going to find. So the first, first Puritans came here getting, turning their back, opposing a Catholic Europe to create a new world. And the first thing they encountered was conflict among themselves over those two central dogmas. Faith alone, scripture alone. Because if somebody lives by faith alone and their reading of scripture doesn't, doesn't form to what the community thinks is the reading of scripture, what happens? And Hutchinson is that figure in, or in a Scarlet Letter. And they cast her out because in their mind, evidence of um, living a holy life was conformity to the rules of the gospel. So immediately those two principles, those dogmas are in conflict. Is that clear? Faith alone means you have only your private reading of something. If that doesn't conform to what everybody else says, the meaning of something, you've got a conflict. And they exiled her. Hawthorne calls her sainted Anne Hutchinson. He admired her so much for her courage. Okay. Second, um, the inefficacy of good works. Man could do no good works on his own without grace because nature is corrupted. It's foul. Man's depraved. For the Protestant mind, nature is depraved, man's depraved. Everything was ruined. So for the Protestant mind, the consequences of the fall were complete. Man was, was reduced to utter depravity. The Catholic doesn't believe that. A Catholic believes we were wounded. We're left with concupiscence. And if any of you, I'm assuming all of you have struggled with your sins, you know that concupiscence can make us feel like we're completely ruined. It's so hard to overcome them. And the third one was predestination of the saved and damned. And that is, I think, Ahab's biggest struggle. Um, he doesn't understand how somebody as noble as man could, be, could have his free will taken away from him and predestined to damnation. 
before he, before he even did anything, he's predestined to damnation. So before man is even created, when he's created by God, he's predestined to one or the other. What kind of an incentive is that for man to do anything on his own behalf? If everything's predestined, why do anything? The Protestants believe God's will was irresistible. It's going to happen anyway, no matter what you do. So they can continue in sin and believe they're going to be saved, or they can continue in sin and actually be damned among those who are predestined to damnation. Okay. Um, the sacraments are gone. When we, when we enter that New England life in Moby Dick, we see that the sacraments are gone. Christianity has been reduced to a moral code. Okay? So wearing vestments, signing the cross, kneeling to receive communion, because all of those things were associated with Catholicism, they were removed. They weren't present. That's the world we enter when we go to New England. Um, and it seems to me one of the things that Melville is showing is if Christianity gets reduced to a moral code, it's just following these rules, that's a sign of your holiness. How do you deal with spiritual evil? It's what Ahab is dealing with. And remember, this is the problem. If man's predestined to evil, to damnation, even before, he's born, before he makes a choice on his own, before he exercises any choice of his own, before he acts on his own, yes, he's damned, or some men are. If he's inherently evil, where did that evil come from? The only answer can be God. If God's the creator of the immortal soul and the immortal soul is damned, where did the evil come from? That's why repeatedly Ahab keeps saying this cunning malice this malicious intelligence because for him it implied if, if evil came from God it's everywhere, this pasteboard mass that he has to strike through, it's everywhere and it means this evil is cunning, it's intelligent so instead of seeing God as a good God, there's an aspect of evil that opens up in those Protestant doctrines and the whole story of Mel Melville Moby Dick is to unmask those to show them, to show what happens for a man who's struggling to answer them in that spirit. Everybody in Moby Dick who goes, who signs up with, um, or um, enters into Ahab's quest, does it because they all believe they've been unjustly wounded. Every one of them, every one of them is responding to a sense of being a victim to wounds. There's something wrong in creation, they're all victims, there's an evil, they want to strike back. So it's not just Ahab, we're seeing a whole culture involved in that quest and involving that theology. Okay, is that clear, I hope? Do you have questions? What about the, uh, what about the pagans on board? Because they are definitely set apart from the rest. 